Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, uh, welcome, everybody. I'm Arthur Millick. I'm a research fellow and the associate director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center uh, for Principles and Politics here at the Heritage Foundation. I'm delighted that you guys could join us this afternoon. Did America have a Christian founding? Mark Hall's answer is a resounding yes. And he believes that this question can be answered through a study of the life, times, and writings of the founders themselves. His new book, here it is, beautiful, uh, gathers all the available evidence to support this claim. And as he says, it is uh, the work of 30 years of thinking. Mark does not stand alone in elaborating this thesis. He's in noble company, and that is the company of Alexis de Tocqueville, who had a similar project. Tocqueville understood that religion was essential to preserving political liberty. In fact, many of the astonishingly correct predictions that Tocqueville made in Democracy in America, this is the one that is proving true more and more with every coming year. Today, regrettably, it's becoming acceptable and even fashionable to believe that Christianity should be altogether excised from the public square. But no one until just a few decades ago believed this. Mark's gracefully written book aims to counteract this tendency by proving not only that the founders and the Constitution were friendly to religion, but that Christianity has an essential role to play in forming citizens and guiding the nation. We're also proud to note that this book began as a lecture that Mark gave here about 10 years ago now. And that lecture is one of the all-time most downloaded heritage papers. And that is actually not surprising, because unlike many scholars, Mark has the rare ability to write engagingly uh, and clearly to a broad audience. And for those of you who have read a lot of scholarship, you guys know precisely what I mean, what undigestible academic prose looks like. This is not it. Mark Hall is currently the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Political Science at George Fox University. His primary research and writing interests are in American political thought and the relationship between religion and politics. He's author of numerous articles and multiple books published by some of the best academic presses, including uh, The Political and Legal Philosophy of James Wilson, Great Christian Jurists in American History, and Faith and, uh, Faith and the Founders of the American Republic. Finally, uh, not only is Mark an excellent scholar, but he's a real gentleman. We're very happy to have you. Please join me in welcoming him. Well, thank you very much, Arthur, for that very generous introduction. And I re remain thankful to Matthew Spaulding, who invited me to give the talk nine years ago. 
It was at that talk where I first met David Azarad, and we went out to coffee and had a fine chat and came back and were pleasantly surprised to see C-SPAN setting up to cover the talk. And um, so I, I, I'm profoundly grateful to the Heritage Foundation. I've done other things with, with the foundation over the years, and it's one of my favorite by far and away. So what we're going to talk about today is the question, did America have a Christian founding? And there are two common answers to this. One, sometimes given by people, by Christians on the, on the left, is of course and absolutely we did. America was founded as, as a distinctly Christian nation. The founders were all godly, pious men, maybe even evangelical Christians. Um, this can be traced back to the 19th century, someone like a Parson Weems, who um, argues that you know, George Washington is this wonderful, pious Christian who could be found kneeling in prayer at Valley Forge. I mean, it's just utter, utterly false. Um, Washington would have never done that, and he would not be worshiping in an evangelical megachurch if he were alive today, as Tim LaHaye said. So this literature is problematic, but I'm not going to address it because it's already been taken to task by numerous scholars and others, and I'm not sure how influential it is outside of a very small band of Americans. On the other hand, you have book after book, let's see, Ooh, there you go, um, written by prominent scholars, published by prominent presses, by popular authors, arguing that the answer is absolutely no. Of course, America did not have a Christian founding. The founders were mostly deists. They created a godless constitution, and they wanted to strictly separate church and state. So in this book, I aim my firepower, such as it is, at these myths. And here I mean by a myth, this false story. And each chapter begins, I, I, I give um, usually about 20 quotations, usually six on the page and another 14 or so in the end notes, where I, where I have people making these claims. Most of America's founders were, were deists. Uh, they're really quite prevalent myths. And then I would like to think I demolish these myths. And then I make the affirmative argument that, in fact, America's founders were influenced in very important ways by the Christian convictions or by ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection. So as we delve into this, let me um, begin just by exploring the question a little bit. What do we mean by a Christian founding? And here I, I want to talk about a couple of possibilities, and I'll do this briefly to get on to some of the more meaty stuff. But So I'm emphasizing what, what, what do we mean by a Christian founding. Well, we might mean self-identification, that America's founders identified themselves as Christians, if this is what we mean, then indisputably we had a Christian founding. About 98% of Americans of European descent are Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, and there are about 2,500 Jews in four or five American cities. So the vast majority of Americans would have identified as Christians, and yet this is a profoundly uninteresting finding, right? They could be heretics, they could be unpious Christians, or they might even be Christians attempting to self-consciously create a secular Republics. I think we have to go well beyond the self-identification. It would be slightly more interesting to argue that most of America's founders were Orthodox Christians, that is, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed sort of Christians. Um, here I can say for sure that the claim that most of America's founders were deists is utterly insupportable. In fact, by the time you get to the end of that chapter, you'll see that I, I, I suggest there's maybe one clear deist among America's civic leaders, and that's Ethan Allen. There's clearly a couple of others, I think, a Tom Paine, a, a Jefferson, perhaps. But it's really hard to get more than, a, than, than five American civic leaders who are deists. On the other hand, you can make very good arguments for the founders for which we have records that there's very good reasons to believe a John Jay, a Roger Sherman, a Patrick Henry, a Samuel Adams are, in fact, Orthodox Christians. 
And yet for many of the founders, we simply don't have good records. So I don't want to make the, 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 the interesting claim that most of America's founders were Orthodox Christians. Um, some historians get real interested in orthopraxy, and they say, well, it doesn't really matter what they believed or what they said or what they wrote. It matters how they lived. And to just give one kind of silly example, but people make this sort of argument, Alexander Hamilton had an extramarital affair. Good Christians don't have extramarital affairs, therefore. But the therefore always kind of leaves me at a little bit of a puzzle. Well, therefore what? If the standard of being a Christian is moral perfection, then I would submit there has never been a Christian. Now, of course, having an extramarital affair is a particularly grievous thing to do, but it certainly doesn't make one a deist or someone attempting to self-consciously create a Christian, uh, secular founding. So let me just jump to the, um, the way I think about the question. And I think it's best to be thought about in terms of influence. And here I'm in good company, right? Scholar after scholar has written book after book, arguing that America's founders were influenced by a secular John Locke, by the classical Republican tradition, by the common law tradition, by the Scottish school of moral sense. And so I put Christianity in that, um, into that discussion. And I think an excellent argument can be made that America's founders were influenced in very important ways, maybe even predominantly by Christian ideas. Now, I do want to hesitate, hasten to say that, of course, there are other intellectual influences. We have 12 men on a jury because of the common law tradition. You don't get that um, out of the Bible. And so I, I'm not saying um, that these other traditions had no influence, but I think Christianity can explain the most. I also should say um, that I don't think the, the Christian ideas of which I want to speak are distinctively or uniquely Christian. One might come to some of them for other reasons, and I'll get, give you some examples later. Uh, but in the American context, this late 18th century context, it makes most sense to think about them in terms of their faith. All right, so let me um, shift gears in and if, say if we have some idea what we're thinking about in terms of a Christian founding, when was America founded? And that's kind of a fun question. I think our minds naturally gravitate to the late 18th century, but one might say, what about the early colonial settlements? And certainly if this is what we mean by uh, when America was founded, I think a very good argument can be made. I, I'm not even going to say anything really to speak of about Puritan New England, because I don't think anyone would deny that these are people self-consciously attempting to create a Christian commonwealth. Um, since we're very close to Virginia, I'll maybe uh, just jump down to Virginia and say, you know, there, there is a very common narrative that New England was about God and the Southern colonies were about gold. And I think there's truth to that. Um, the, the Southern colonists came looking for gold. They didn't find it, but they found tobacco and that was almost as good. And so they grew tobacco and they were seeking commercial success. Um, there certainly is truth to this, but you would be misled if you thought people in Virginia were not concerned with matters of faith. The um, Virginia 1610 legal code begins like this, whereas his majesty, like himself, a most zealous prince, hath in his own realms a principal care of true religion and reverence to God, and has always strictly commanded his generals and governors to be with all his forces wheresoever to let their ways be like their ends for the glory of God. So Virginia is concerned as sort of an ultimate end with the glorification of God. The legal code goes on to mandate church attendance, to provide for the death penalty for people who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and this sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying, incidentally, these are good things. Um, I think they're, in, in fact, profoundly worrisome things. But uh, the, the point simply is these Virginian colonists 
um, were trying to create what they conceived to be as Christian commonwealth as well. Um, let me just jump briefly for my last example, because it's such a fun example for me. I teach at George Fox University, a school in the Friends tradition, the Quaker tradition. We're very proud of Pennsylvania, right? Founded by the Quaker William Penn. And my Quaker colleagues would like to think this is this wonderful bastion of tolerance in a sea of intolerance, right? You got the intolerant Puritans up in New England and the Southerners in slavery and whatnot. Well, that would be nice if it were true. But in fact, in Pennsylvania, just like everywhere else, um, these folks thought they were creating a, a Christian commonwealth. The Pennsylvania Charter of Government references Romans 13. Its early laws go on to say things like this, that magistrates um, should punish offenses against God, such as, and I'm quoting here, swearing, cursing, profane lying, profane talking, drunkenness, obscene words, incest, sodomy, and it gets better. Stage plays, cards, dice, May games, gamesters, masks, revel, bull baiting, cockfighting, bear baiting, and the like, which excite the people to rudeness, cruelty, looseness, and irreligion. So even in Quaker Pennsylvania, they thought the civic authorities had a very important role to play in punishing vice, rewarding um, virtue. Pennsylvania, like almost every other colony, had religious tests for office, religious tests, um, that were refined but remained in place um, into the 19th century. As you know, of course, nine of the 13 colonies had established churches and so forth. So I want to submit to you that if we consider America to have been founded in its early colonial settlements, it's a really easy case to be made. But I'll jump to the harder case because one might say, what about the Declaration of Independence and maybe more broadly America's um, separation from Great Britain. Isn't this, after all, when America came into being as an independent country of sorts? And one could argue that this is profoundly problematic for my position because does not Romans 13 say, and I'll quote it to you, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and authorities that exist are appointed by God. So the church did indeed historically hold that this means no rebellion. If the state tells you to bow down and worship Baal, you say no but you don't get to overthrow the tyrannical ruler. Some Catholic thinkers in the 12th, 13th century started toying around with the idea of um, tyrannicide, but that really didn't take off in this era in the Roman Catholic Church. However, among those Protestants, those troublemaking Protestants, and especially the Calvinists, um, a doctrine that tyrants may justly, biblically be resisted, um, became a very important part of that tradition. People here are misled a little bit because they look just at John Calvin, as if Calvin is the only Calvinist who matters. In his Institutes, Calvin says, inferior magistrates may justly resist a ruler who becomes a tyrant. But Calvin is the most conservative of all the reformers on this point. Well, maybe one other exception. But even Calvin, this is a 1559, the last edition of his Institutes, Three times after, after the last edition, in a commentary, in a letter, in one other document, he actually suggests, well, maybe the people themselves have a right to justly resist a tyrant. But Calvin, again, isn't the last Calvinist. John Knox is up in Scotland saying the people themselves may rise up and justly overthrow a um, tyrant. The author of Wendicke, Contras Tyrannos, Ponet, Goodman, Rutherford, within the Reformed tradition, this becomes a very deep and important um, abiding idea that tyrants may be biblically and justly resisted. Now, you might say, Hall, oh, there aren't that many Calvinists around. Why are you beating on this dead horse? 
But of course, in the late 18th century, there were plenty of Calvinists. Um, Harry Stout, Cindy Alstrom, and others have estimated that between 50 and 75% of Americans in the late 18th century are reasonably classified as Calvinists. So this is a very important tradition in this era. We tend to get misled a little bit because we focus on very prominent Anglicans, uh, George Washington, uh, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but only about 15% of Americans actually are Anglican in this era. Now, this um, connection between the, 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 the reformers, or the reform tradition, and the patriot cause was noticed by the other side. The loyalist Peter Oliver railed against the dissenting clergy who took so active a part in the rebellion. By dissenting clergy, he means, of course, non-Anglican clergy, your, your Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, and others. King George himself reportedly referred to the War for Independence as a Presbyterian rebellion. Um, let me suggest as well that the, that the most important document coming out of this era, the Declaration of Independence, um, rest, I would suggest, on a theological, theological claim. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, you might object, well, Thomas Jefferson is not an Orthodox Christian. Maybe he's a deist. He's a secular author. And I'll even just concede that for the sake of argument. And yet we need to remember that there was a five-person committee that put together this Declaration of Independence, a committee that included the old Puritan from Connecticut, Roger Sherman. This committee changed Jefferson's drafts in ways he did not like. The draft then went to Congress, where it was altered again, again in ways Jefferson did not like. And the only reason this document has authority is because it was appointed, it was approved by Congress. So I would submit that if we want to understand this document, we have to look at it as a product of a community. We cannot simply interpret it based on what we know about the interior of Jefferson's mind. And so if you were to um, look at the other members of this, this Congress, when they refer to creator or providence and even nature's God, they're thinking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God that indisputably intervenes in the affairs of men and nation. Well, let's move on. I keep going from difficulty to difficulty, and I, I spend more time on a number of these things in the book, as you might imagine. But what about the godless constitution? You might say, fine, there's biblical and theological justification for rebellion, but the godless constitution, clearly here you have a significant shift. And I'm referencing, of course, this book by Kramnik and Moore that has received a, a de decent amount of press, at least among academics who work on this. And of course, one of their points is simply that the deity is not referenced in the Constitution. And this is more or less correct, not to get to the dateline in the year of our Lord, 1787, but I wouldn't rest too much on that argument. And yet, if this was their only point, they could write their argument in a sentence instead of a book. But they wrote a book, so what do they do? Well, one of the things they do is they argue that most of America's founders were deists, uh, a proposition that I think I absolutely demolish in the first substantial chapter of the book. And they also say America's founders were influenced by secular Enlightenment ideas, not by Christian ideas. And here's where, again, you're kind of back to my turf, because I wanted to argue for the Christian influence upon America's founders. And before I give you a few um, substan substantive ideas here, let me point to a study I'm sure many of you all are familiar with. The fellow named Donald Lutz did this wonderful content analysis of political literature from the founding era where he went through and basically counted up citations, and he divides them by decades and all sorts of things. And I know you might not be able to read it, but I'll give you the highlights. So of all the political literature that he looked at, 
Of all the citations he counted up, 34% are to the Bible, only 22% are to all Enlightenment thinkers combined. So put together your Locke and your Montesquieu and your Bakari and Smith and all of them, 22%. So the Bible is being used all the time in the political literature of the founding, and yet Lutz profoundly undercounts references to the Bible for two reasons. First of all, he explicitly, he tells us he's excluding political sermons that don't also reference secular authors. So if he had included those, as you might imagine, their sermons, for goodness sakes, there'd be a lot more references to the Bible. And also, he's looking for what we think of as citations, a little parenthetical Micah 4.4, John 3.16, that sort of thing. But the founders reference the Bible, they alluded to the Bible, they use the Bible all the time in their, in their writings without Give me the citation. My friend Daniel Dreisbach has written a great book about this, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, and I'll give you a few examples of this as we go along. So I, I think it, this study begs to be redone nowadays with modern technology, and I think when it is redone, we would see that the Bible absolutely and utterly dwarfs any other document in terms of its authority. Let me shift then to just four ideas that I think are, are ideas coming out of the Christian tradition that had a very important impact on America's founders. Um, now, let me again stipulate that these are not distinctly or uniquely Christian ideas. So to begin with, um, the founders were convinced to a person that humans are sinful, that even Christians struggle with the old man within. Uh, Madison talks about self-interest, but he also says things like, if men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary. Now, again, you can come to this conclusion as an um, 8th century person in China just by observing the world around you, right? And yet for the founders, someone like a Madison educated by a Presbyterian minister as a boy, going to the Presbyterian College in New Jersey, studying at Witherspoon, um, and for these 50 to 75% of Americans who are Calvinists, and Calvinists, of course, emphasize the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, people learn to read reading the New England Primer, which has a cute little alphabet, A, in Adam's fall, we sin all. I mean, the, the, the reason these folks had a very skeptical view of human nature, I would submit, is because of their Christian convictions. Um, let me go on to a couple of others. The American founders were convinced that there are moral standards. To use a language you all would be very familiar with, I'm sure, they believed in natural law. You read James Wilson's lectures on law, and you think you are reading St. Thomas Aquinas sometimes, right? He makes distinctions like this. There are two types of law divine and human. There are four types of divine law, God's eternal law, celestial laws, natural moral laws, and natural physical laws. Human laws must be based upon moral law if they are to be legitimate. An unjust law is no law at all. He literally quotes St. St. Um, Augustine on this point. Um, the founders to a person were convinced about this and it informed their, what, what they did in a variety of ways. Um, as well, um, sometimes we get really confused um, trying to understand what the founders meant by liberty and how they could do things like pass the First Amendment and the Alien and Sedition Act. Well, simply put, the founders distinguished between liberty and license or licentiousness. So more than one founder said things like this, liberty must never be used but within the bounds of right and duty. Or this, law without liberty is tyranny, but liberty without law is licentiousness. For the founders, liberty is a freedom to do what is right. To say that you have a, a liberty to do something wrong, like punish, publish pornography, would have just been absolutely alien to America's founders. And finally, and I think maybe most strikingly, the founders were convinced that humans are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and therefore should be treated with dignity 
in respect. Here I'll quote James Wilson again, but this time from a U.S. Supreme Court opinion, Chisholm versus Georgia. Listen to what he says. Man, fearfully and wonderfully made, is a workmanship of his all-perfect creator. First of all, note, and, and let me emphasize, this is a U.S. Supreme Court opinion. He's making a theological claim, but I bet some of you all picked up on the reference. Man, fearfully and wonderfully made. This is Psalm 139.4, but he didn't put in the little parenthetical Psalm 139.4, so Donald Lutz would have missed this reference. Um, Wilson goes on in his lectures on law to spin this out, to tease this out. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Um, when he talks about um, life, he said life from its conception, actually quickening was what he used, but I think today he would say conception, to its natural end must be protected by law. He specifically addresses suicide. Can you commit suicide? And his answer there is no. It's not your life. It's God's life, and it would be inappropriate for you to take what belongs to God. Well, let me shift, because I know we're in Washington, D.C., and you all are interested in practical things. Let me shift to religious liberty, church-state relations. And here, two jurisprudential liberals have done me a great favor. Hugo Black and Wiley Rutledge in Everson versus the Board of Education made it crystal clear that the founders' views matters with respect to religious liberty. Let me quote Wiley Rutledge. No provision of the Constitution is most more closely tied to or given content by its generating history than the religion clause of the First Amendment. It is at once a refined product and a tersimation of that history. So Black and Rutledge both agreed. They were on different sides of the outcome of this case, but they both agreed we have to interpret the First Amendment religion clause, they called it, we'd call it clauses, in light of the founders' views. Believe it or not, almost every Supreme Court justice has followed suit. Every Supreme Court justice who's written at least four religion clause opinions has made historical arguments in their opinions. Um, Jurisprudential liberals are actually slightly more likely to make these arguments than our conservatives. The problem is, as you might imagine, jurisprudential liberals think like this. We must interpret the Establishment Clause, particularly in light of the founders' views. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison equal the American founders. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison desired the strict separation of church and state. Therefore, the First Amendment requires this separation of church and state. I want to suggest in a minute that this is profoundly problematic. Let me first give some good news, though. I was talking with someone about this earlier. One of the great things to come about by the founding era, um, anyone who says America was founded in its early colonial settlements um, for religious liberty just hasn't read the history. Um, it was founded to, so that colonists could do a variety of things that they thought best. Um, including create these Christian commonwealths, but commonwealths that would ban Quakers, that would ban Jesuits and things like this. By the time you got to the late 18th century, Americans really had moved to a pretty robust understanding of religious liberty. This is illustrated well, I think, in um, many Americans refer to it as a sacred right of conscience, with that, which I think is telling and interesting. But I want to jump right to George Mason, Article 16 of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. He writes this, that as religion or the duty which we owe our divine and omnipotent creator. Note that he grounds this argument in a theological claim, that we have a, divine, a duty to our divine and omnipotent creator, and the manner of discharging it can be governed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. Therefore, all men should enjoy the fullest toleration in the exercise of religion. Now, that's not bad. But a young James Madison didn't like that word toleration. He suggested that kind of sounds like it's a gift from the state that might be removed from the state. And he argued that we should have the language of a natural right to freely exercise our faith. The convention agreed, agreed with Madison. 
and this document was changed. One of the more influential documents in the era, incidentally, by the end of the Constitution-making era after 1776, every state provided a substantial protection for religious liberty, either in its constitution or in statutory law. And of course, the US Constitution did not, but that's because the um, Federalists contended that, well, the national government has no power to touch on religion at all, period. So we don't need it. The Anti-Federalists were not convinced, and they advocated for and eventually got a Bill of Rights. The First Amendment um, protects the free exercise of religion, of course. Well, let me move, um, again, more into Establishment Clause areas then. Um, you might say to me, well, what about the disestablishment, the move to disestablish churches? Does this not show that Americans are becoming enlightened rationalists or that sort of thing? And I would say not at all. America's founders, by and large, opposed religious establishments for the exact same reason I oppose them today, and I'm sure many of you all oppose them today, because they're bad for Christianity. They're bad for religion. If you want to hurt religion, get the government running it, right? Um, this comes out well in the, in the Virginia debates. Um, Patrick Henry is very worried. Since about 1776, Virginia hadn't been taxing people to support the Anglican Church, and this really worried Patrick Henry, who thought religion was so important that, of course, the state should subsidize it. A very natural tendency, right? People think that way all the time. Um, and so he proposed a very generous general assessment bill that wouldn't tax everyone to support the Anglican church. It would tax you to support the church you choose to attend, much as Germany's church tax does today. Uh, but people were troubled by this. And particularly, I really like this um, petition that came into the Virginia, Virginia General Assembly from a group of evangelicals out of Westmoreland County. And these evangelicals said this. They said that assessments are against the spirit of the gospel. The holy author of our religion did not require state support and that Christianity was far purer before Constantine first established it by human laws. They went on to reject this idea that we need to have subsidies so that we can pay ministers more. They said specifically that clergy should manifest to the world that they are inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost to take upon themselves that office, that they seek the good of mankind, not worldly interest. Let their doctrines be scriptural, their lives upright. Then shall religion, if departed, speedily return, and deism be put to open shame and its dreaded consequences removed. So these are evangelicals that are arguing, look, if you want religion, by which they mean Christianity to flourish, we have got to get the state out of the business of running it, of subsidizing it. And once we do that, deism will be chased away. Now, if you all know anything about the Virginia Disestablishments debate, you probably, and I know many of you do, you probably know Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance. The Memorial and Remonstrance was signed by 1,500 people. This petition was signed by 4,500. So almost three times as many people signed this petition as signed Madison's Memorial. Um, when people think about the memorial, they tend to treat it as a secular Enlightenment text. But I'll call your attention to just a few lines here. Um, Madison, paraphrasing the Virginia Declaration of Rights, says that the religious liberty is inalienable because what is here, a right towards men, is a duty to the creator. As well, Madison argued that ecclesiastical establishments, instead of maintaining the purity and efficacy of religion, have a contrary effect. And finally, the bill is adverse to the diffusion of the light of Christianity. Now, you might say, well, Madison's just making those arguments for rhetorical effect. And even if this is the case, I would submit to you he thought it would be rhetorically effective. This tells us a good bit about Virginia political culture of the time. And so the basic argument would be this. Yes, 
the states are moving away from establishments. Some states hold on. Massachusetts is the last to get rid of their establishment in 1833. But the reasons, I believe, are profoundly Christian reasons. That establishments hurt Christianity. Therefore, we should get rid of them. Let me return then to this, um, what I call Everson syllogism, this idea that we must interpret the Establishment Clause in light of Jefferson and Madison. Now, the easy argument I can make is to say, well, Madison and Jefferson were unrepresentative, and I'll make that argument. But let me first uh, make a little bit harder argument to say, I don't think that this wall of separation metaphor that comes out of a letter to the Danbury Baptist even really represents Madison and Jefferson well, at least in terms of what they did. And I'll focus on, on Jefferson here, although I look at both founders in my book. So Jefferson, as governor of Virginia, issued calls for prayer and fasting. In his revi revision of Virginia's statutes, he actually drafted bills stipulating when governors could appoint days for public fasting and humiliation or Thanksgiving. And he drafted a bill to punish disturbers of religious worship. Now, what becomes particularly fun, as a member of the Continental Congress, he was on a three-man committee to design a national seal. Here is what, oh, do I not have it? Oh, no. Oh, here, I got it, I got it. There you go. This is Jefferson's suggestion for the national seal. Um, this is an art, artist's rendition of it. I'll read you what he actually wrote. He said that a national seal should have Moses extending his hand over the sea, causing it to overwhelm Pharaoh. And the motto of the United States should be rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Using overt Christian imagery in our national seal, that does not sound like someone who is acting as if there's a wall of separation between church and state. Even a little bit more fun, at least in my mind, two days after Jefferson wrote the letter to the Danbury Baptist, he went to the U.S. Capitol to go to church. Um, he, the Capitol was routinely open for worship services on Sunday. On that day, two days after he wrote the letter to the Danbury Baptist, John Leland was in town. John Leland, of course, a great Baptist itinerant minister and himself an opponent of religious establishments in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and elsewhere, and yet he was a preacher. So these opponents of religious establishments apparently saw no problem with having church services in the U.S. Capitol building. Jefferson, in fact, specifically made the War Department building, the Treasury Department building, available for worship services as well. So what am I arguing? Please don't hear me as arguing that Jefferson was an Orthodox Christian, and I'm not even arguing that he wanted any sort of union between church and state. He clearly wanted a greater degree of separation than almost any other founder, with the possible exception of James Madison. And yet, even those folks did not act as if there was this wall of separation between church and state. If we turn from these folks to the rest of the founding generation, we see a very different picture. And I'll just illustrate this by looking at the first federal Congress, which is, of course, a very important Congress because this is the very body that drafted the First Amendment. Um, one of its very first acts was to agree to appoint chaplains, one for the House, one for the Senate. Shortly thereafter, they agreed to pay chaplains. Again, not very surprising in the era, uh, both for the legislative branch and the military. Um, they also reauthorized the Northwest Ordinance, which held that religion, morality, and knowledge are necessary for good government. Again, one of these wonderful coincidences that you almost couldn't invent, one day after the House arrived at its final language for what is now the First Amendment, Ilias Boudinot, later president of the American Bible Society, said something like this. I'm paraphrasing. Hey, guys, things are going well. 
why don't we ask George Washington, President Washington, to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation? Now, even back in the 18th century, there's dissenters, as there always are. And so Adonis Burke and Thomas Tucker said, we can't do that. We can't possibly do that because that's a European custom. It's not a, um, an American custom. Roger Sherman, who's at the bottom um, right there, or bottom left, um, the old Puritan from, from Connecticut, he responded. He was recorded. We don't have um, tra verbatim transcripts, of course, but a, a newspaper um, reporter recorded him as responding in this way. He justified the practice of Thanksgiving on any single event, not only as a laudable one in itself, but as warranted by a number of precedents in holy writ. For instance, the solemn thanksgiving and rejoicing which took place in the time of Solomon after the building of the temple was a case in point. This example he thought worthy of Christian imitation on the present occasion, and he would agree with the gentleman who moved the resolution. Did you follow that argument? He said it's not a European custom, it's a biblical custom. It's something that Christians should imitate. The House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman, the Senate agreed with the House, and George Washington, of course, um, agreed with them both and issued this wonderfully theologically robust Thanksgiving Day pro Proclamation of 1789, which I will not read, although it's worth reading. You can find it easily enough, and I'm sure many of you all are familiar with it. All right, so what did the founders intend with this Establishment Clause? I argue, and I give more reasons to believe this, that basically the words mean what they say. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion. We aren't going to have a national church. And now through the doctrine of incorporation, states cannot have official state churches either. Other than that, I think it's pretty much wide open as a matter of original understanding as to ways in which um, church and state can cooperate, and particularly the ways in which the, the, the state or the government may choose to encourage people to pray, um, include monuments of the Ten Commandments on state house grounds, provide a voucher program in which religious citizens can participate on the same terms as anyone else. Now, some of these things, you know, we can argue about and we should debate them, and I think that's fine. And we, one might come up with good reasons for not putting up new monuments of the Ten Commandments, but these are things we should debate as adults and not pretend that the founders intended a wall of separation to prevent that sort of thing. All right, so by way of conclusion, let me suggest that if we have to answer the question with a simple yes or no, did America have a Christian founding, I think indisputably the best answer is yes. Note that I'm emphasizing that we had a Christian founding. I'm not, as some authors want to argue, arguing that America was founded as a Christian nation. That's a very different thing. It's a very exclusive thing. That makes it sound as if it's a nation for Christians, and maybe we'll tolerate non-Christians, but maybe, maybe not. This was absolutely not the founder's view. Um, Article 6 clearly prohibits religious tests for office. Um, one of my favorite ways of illustrating this point, though, is in Washington's wonderful letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. Remember what I said. There's only about 2,000, 2,500 Jews in America at the time. This is not a constituency that you need to pander to. And yet Washington wrote this wonderful letter. Listen to what he argues and what he says. All citizens alike possess liberty and conscience and the immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was excuse me, by the indulgence of one class that another enjoy the exercise of their inherent natural rights. Let me call your attention, just like in the Virginia our, our debates, um, Washington says toleration is not enough. People have a natural right to freely exercise their faith. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. 
wonderful, wonderful, robust defense of religious liberty. Let me read on, though, because this last paragraph is very telling, I think. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in the land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercy scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. I'm sure many of you all know that Washington here incorporates nine separate scriptural allusions in this one paragraph alone, including a reference to Micah 4.4, which is his favorite verse. He references it more than 40 times in a variety of documents, and yet some scholars still say things like, there is no evidence that George Washington ever read his Bible. Um, the only way you can come to this conclusion is if you're biblically illiterate. He does it all the time, and yet this wonderful paragraph I just read has no citation. So Donald Lutz would have missed each of those allusions to Scripture. And I say this not at all to be critical of Lutz, just to show the shortcoming of his methodology for understanding how pervasive Scripture is. All right, so in the final analysis, I want to argue that America had a Christian founding, but this is very good news for all of us, regardless of our religious convictions. I think things such as the rule of law, federalism, separation of powers, checks and balances, they, they benefit us all to this day, um, regardless of our religious convictions. And I hope I've made it clear that America's founders clearly believe that religious liberty is something that is enjoyed by all citizens, Christian and non-Christian alike. Thank you very much. I guess we have a few minutes for questions or objections, which might even be more fun. Um, yes, sir. Do you want to wait for the microphone? Before the, uh, before the revolution, um, George Whitfield spent from, what, 1739 until 1770, uh, even though he was an Englishman, he spent most of that time traveling from Georgia all the way up to New England and back, preaching in open-air uh, environments to thousands of people. Uh, some people say that he may have preached to as many as 10 million um, uh, American colonists during that period of time. It occurred to me that he probably played a role in the spiritual preparation uh, of the American Revolution. I just wanted to, to ask you, what are your thoughts on that? Have you, have you given that any thought? And what's your opinion? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, so, of course, Whitfield is preaching during a time that we refer to as the Great Awakening, where many people were sort of quickened in their faith. And oftentimes what this meant is not moving from being a non-Christian to a Christian, but embracing a more evangelical form of Christianity, a form of Christianity that, that, that sort of challenged the established institutions. And so, yeah, I think it's very important, and I, I would certainly not be the first scholar to call attention to this. Alan Heimer, in a wonderful book that's probably 50 years old now, draws a direct line from this, the First Great Awakening to the War for American Independence. So I think it, it cannot be ignored. Let me briefly take this as an opportunity to um, say many, many scholars will point out, they would say, well, in the 1740s, America was really, really religious, and then basically we had a low period in the 1780s, and then with the Second Great Awakening in the 1820s and 30s, we became religious again. And so sociologists, Finke and Stark, have figures of something like 18% of Americans were churched, and the rest weren't churched. 
Um, this figure has been totally and completely debunked by Jim Hudson of the Library of Congress and others, and yet you will still see this all the time in the polemical literature. Um, far better estimates are something of the, uh, along the range of 75% um, of Americans were church, by which they meant not only identifying themselves as Christians, but going with some regularity, um, in fact, to church. During the whole period? During the whole period, yes. You know, these things are very hard to document, as you might imagine, but um, two historians, um, Eisenstadt and Bonimi, in a, in a great article I'm in Mary Quarterly, do a very good job of this, of showing this. Yes, sir. So first of all, let me say I love this presentation. Very gratifying. Thank you. It gives you that intellectual sort of foundation to argue with other people uh, from. <clears throat> but it, two, two thoughts. One is I, I sometimes wonder, having read a lot of the letters of this era uh, before the revolution as well, if, if it's not like uh, looking for gravity, nobody talks much about gravity or electricity, you know, but it seems to be there nevertheless. And... Um, Two specifics. One, I wonder if a great test of the Christian and perhaps even just faith-based, but particularly Christian founding, isn't the fact that in many of these letters, uh, they refer obliquely or directly to salvation. I mean, if the greatest aspect of faith is truly salvation, and Jefferson, uh, in his letters to friends, even in his younger years, writes a lot about that topic, uh, ironically. And the last question is about Locke. You know, you, I think you said earlier that Locke is not, and I just wonder if this is, you said he, he may not have been sort of, I, how did you describe him, more of a secularist? Yes, yeah, so I was attributing to others an argument that America's founders were um, influenced by a secularized John Locke. Right. But of course, scholars spent a lot of debate debating, a lot of time debating the nature of Locke. Yeah. And his, well, of course, life, liberty, and property becomes life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Yeah, yeah. But I spent a couple of years at Oxford, and I'll tell you, one of the greatest joys was walking these walks where Locke walked. In 1652, he was basically, I think, a Calvinist. I mean, he was a, he, he was a Christian, there's no question. And, and Oxford was a seminary, even though he studied medicine. I'm curious about that. Yeah, those are both useful. So I think, first of all, to your first comment, you're absolutely right. When you get into the letters of these individuals, they're regularly referring to things such as, um, such as salvation, but also particularly relevant to my first substantial chapter, they are always talking about God's intervention in the affairs of men and nations, including very individually, right? So George Washington references providence 270 times alone, and he's regularly talking about ways in which he sees God moving. Um, John Adams is, is very big on God's intervention as well. Clearly, um, Adams departs from the uh, camp of Orthodox Christians, um, but he still seems to believe in a creator God that certainly intervenes um, in, in our affairs. Regarding the second, um, and, and I think the, the, the nature of Locke and how we should interpret Locke, again, this is an entire cottage industry, and there are those who would say he's clearly a very secular thinker who uses religious language just so he's not persecuted. Or there are scholars, very good scholars, who argue that, in fact, he's clearly some sort of Christian um, who retains um, a connection to the tradition, and his writing is certainly compatible with Christianity. When it comes to the American context, I think we need to look um, to a certain degree of the reception of Locke. Basically, Locke is only available in a very bulky three-volume collection of his writings in early 18th century, and no one's talking about anything other than a few academics talking about his essay on human understanding. 
In the 1740s, during the, set, the First Great Awakening, his letter on toleration is published for the first time, but this is published by religious conservatives trying to make room for their more conservative brand uh, approach to Christianity. The um, second treatise isn't published until 1774, and here for the first time it really is referenced with some regularity to support the war for American independence. But I think here, and I, I think a very strong case can be made, that whatever, however we should properly read Locke, Americans in this era read him as a natural ally who certainly is articulating nothing that's not thoroughly compatible with this long reformed um, doctrine that tyrants can be resisted. And as you know, um, Locke's own father was a Puritan. This is the environment in which Locke was raised. So I sort of ducked the whole Locke Wars thing, but I would say then um, to the extent to which he is referenced, um, he's seen as a friendly ally, not some sort of pernicious unchristian influence. Yes, sir. Thank you for such a wonderfully rich and interesting discussion. Um, you're a historian? Um, a political scientist by training, but almost all my work has been historical okay, in nature. Okay, that's good. So my question is acceptable then. So what's the so what? What, what would you say to us here? And this is a policy organization, right? Right. What's the so what coming out of your your research and your book? That is a wonderful question. It's a question my wife has been asking me for years, quite literally, right? I do all this academic stuff, and she's so what, what does it mean for me? Well, I think I'll, I'll begin with, a, 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 first of all, something I'm sure needs a little defense here. I think it's just important to have an accurate account of American history that's worthwhile in and of itself. If I were writing a history of Saudi Arabia, it would be insane to try to write a history of the politics of Saudi Arabia without reference to Islam. Right? It's just important to get history right. Um, James Wilson has this wonderful um, comment about the importance of reflecting upon the first principles of any political regime. And so I think it's useful for us as citizens just to try to go back and understand um, what the founders were all about. What were they intending to do? What did they try to do when they created this constitutional order? That's a healthy enterprise in and of itself. Practically, American civic leaders are routinely appealing to the founders to support various policy positions. And so I think, again, it's useful to have an accurate account of what they actually believed so that um, we can either make the good arguments or debunk the bad arguments. And then finally, with respect to religious liberty, church-state relations, the U.S. Supreme Court has made it crystal clear that history matters. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her dissent um, in the Bladenisburg Cross case is making historical arguments about why the founders would have prohibited uh, World War I era cross memorializing the dead from the county. And so I think it's important to get that history right. And here I think we can see some impact. My, my friend Daniel Dreisbach came up with this point, and I think he's right. If I were making these arguments about the Establishment Clause before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1982, William Rehnquist would have been nodding along and the other eight would have been skeptical. Today, I think pretty much everyone knows that this, um, this, this understanding of the Establishment Clause is building a wall of separation between church and state. It's just bad history. Everyone knows that. Someone like a Justice Stevens um, was actually intellectually honest about this. In one of his opinions, he said, well, if we were to go by the original understanding of the Establishment Clause, this would clearly be permitted, but obviously we can't permit it today, so we won't permit it. And I think he was dissenting in this case. Um, which is intellectually honest, right? If you want to argue for a strict separation of church and state, make policy arguments, make non-originalist arguments, but don't pretend that the founders understood the Establishment Clause to um, strictly separate church and state. I believe there's a question in the back row there. 
Yeah. Hi. Can you talk a little bit about how the founders uh, dealt with the ideas of the Imago Dei and then human chattel? I think that's a wonderful question and not to sound too commercial, but I'll have a sequel to this book where I'll have an entire chapter on this question. I think it's a very important question. So the good news is some were coming to recognize the incompatibility of holding that, cre that humans are creating that Mago Dei and the institution of chattel slavery. So I think it's something like eight states voluntarily abolished slavery. It put slavery on the path to extinction uh, between 1776 and 1804 or so. Pennsylvania, I quote from their, um, their defense of the Gradual Manumission Act, it's beautiful and it's explicitly Christian. 1780, the Gradual Manumission Act said something like this, recognizing that liberty is a gift from God and that it should not be um, withheld from any of his creatures, we hereby um, abolish slavery in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, it was the Gradual Manumission Act, and we should say it should have been an immediate Manumission Act, and I would say absolutely it should have. Um, but uh, a Gradual Manumission Act is better than no act at all. I think the, um, the American founders were by and large convinced that slavery was on the road to extinction, that it would not last in America. It seems even many of the Southern gentlemen were not comfortable with it. You know, Jefferson famously refers to um, slavery as having a wolf by the ears. You really don't want to be there, but there's also a real danger in letting go of the ears, and the wolf might attack you. And he, um, again, seemed to want, seemed to believe slavery was on its way out, seemed uncomfortable with it, but of course never took any significant steps to freeing his own slaves. And so we can justly condemn him for that sort of thing, and the others um, who did not do that sort of thing either. Eli Whitney came along and ruined the whole thing, right, with the invention of the cotton gin that then made cotton a very um, profitable crop. Cotton requires a lot of human labor to be grown and harvested and so forth. And so slavery became very, very, um, very, very economically um, valuable. And I think it just cemented the um, Southern commitment to preserving this institution. It's not until the 1830s that slavery is actually defended in any widespread sense as a positive good. You know, before it's always, you know, some sort of institution we have and it's problematic. It's only in the 1830s that people start saying this is actually a good thing. Um, it's around this time, of course, that you have the abolitionist movement that really gets up and running. And the abolitionists, almost to a person, are profoundly motivated by their Christian convictions that this evil must be resisted, as were uh, many of the antebellum reformers, the um, supporters of the Cherokee Indians uh, before the Trail of Tears, and of course, all sorts of other reform movements. So I would say that I think some founders are, are coming to the conclusion that slavery is absolutely incompatible with this fact that humans are created in the image of God. I certainly wish more had and more had more quickly. My argument that America had a Christian founding uh, does not, I think, necessitate me as having to argue that they were right in every respect all the time. And here I think it was a profound failing that more people did not come to the recognition that slavery and humans being created in the Imago Dei are incompatible. All right, last question. Sure, you briefly mentioned uh, Thanksgiving. So do you have any perspective on that that might be different from the way it's traditionally uh, recounted? Yeah, a fellow named Tracy McKenzie at Wheaton College has a wonderful book on Thanksgiving, the origins of Thanksgiving, and the way in which Thanksgiving has been um, practiced. To state the obvious, I'm sure everyone here knows, um, the, the pilgrims came together to give thanks to God, not the Native Americans. Um, and this is, of course, the way Thanksgivings um, generally were 
were, were practiced. It didn't become a national holiday, holiday until much later. But it was very common for um, governors or presidents to issue these calls, these Thanksgiving Day proclamations, which, again, I, I would commend you to George Washington. It, it's just wonderfully rich. Um, and not just saying, America is so great, let's say hurrah, but basically saying, look, Americans, we should come together and beg God to forgive us for our sins, individual and national sins, and yet also give him glory and praise for all the good things that we have. So yeah, I think it really, um, it, to the extent to which anyone did anything resembling our modern Thanksgiving, it completely and totally centered on giving thanks to God. It's really not until the mid-19th century that it becomes a sort of commercial holiday that it oftentimes is um, practiced today. Great question. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you all.